Hello and welcome to Pablo's channel. And uh, yeah, we are continuing with Island. Um, we're now up to chapter seven, my lucky number. And um, yeah, good. I'm in my bedroom this time because it's late. It's well, it's just about hitting nine o'clock. Cold and windy out there, and uh, so it's nice to be snug in the bed. They haven't got the heating on, so it's even more snug in the bed. Um, and I'm feeling super snug because I've just had cooked myself a nice doppiazza. Do doppiazza. I sound almost Italian to me that, but it's an Indian name, and apparently it means a uh, double onion because you put so much onion in it, a grated onion. Uh, whole grated onion and a whole like chopped up you know in, in cubes and uh wow and plenty of tomato in it as well and it was delish it is so much it's so much better when you cook with your own ingredients from this is cooked from scratch as well no paste no patats like that. yeah and it's fun yeah i'm glad i'm getting back into making these curries <coughs> I might make a dance sack next. <clears throat> anyway, back to the, the, the book. And um, yeah, chapter seven. Here we go. <coughs> Sit back, relax, and enjoy. He could never go to sleep during the day. But when he looked next at his watch, oh, by the way, it's the uh, 12th of November. 2020 so yeah he could never go back go go to sleep during the day when he looked next at his watch the time was 25 past four and he was feeling wonderfully refreshed he picked up notes on what what and resumed his interrupted reading give us this day our daily faith but deliver us dear god from belief this was as far as he had got this morning, and now here was a new section, the fifth. Me as I think I am, and me as I am in fact. Sorrow, in other words, and the ending of sorrow. One third, more or less, of all the sorrow that the person I think I am must endure is unavoidable. It is the sorrow inherent in the human condition. The price we must pay for being sentient and self-conscious organisms. Aspirants to liberation. But subject to the laws of nature and under orders to keep on marching through irreversible time. Through a world wholly indifferent to our well-being. Towards decrepitude and the certainty of death. The remaining two-thirds of all sorrow is homemade and... So far as the universe is concerned, unnecessary. We'll turn the page. A sheet of notepaper fluttered onto the bed. He picked it up and glanced at it. Twenty lines of small, clear writing, and at the bottom of the page, the initials SM. Not a letter, evidently. A poem, and therefore public property. He read... Somewhere between boot silence and last Sundays, 1,300,000 sermons. 
Somewhere between Calvin on Christ, God help us, and the lizards. Somewhere between seeing and speaking. Somewhere between our soiled and greasy currency of words. And the first star, the great moths fluttering about the ghosts of flowers. Lies the clear place where I, no longer I, never less remember. Love nightlong wisdom of the other shore. And, listening to the wind, remember too the other night, that first of widowhood, sleepless, with death beside me in the dark. Mine, mine, all mine, mine inescapable. But I, no longer I, in this clear place between my thought and silence, see all I had and lost, anguish and joys, blowing like Gentians in the alpine grass, blue, unpossessed, and open. Like gentians, Will repeated to himself, and thought of that summer holiday in Switzerland when he was twelve, thought of the meadow, high above Grendelwald, with its unfamiliar flowers, its wonderful un-English butterflies, thought of the dark blue sky and the sunshine and the huge shining mountains on the other side of the valley and all his father had found to say was that it looked like an advertisement for Nestle's uh, milk chocolate not even real chocolate he had insisted with a grimace of disgust milk chocolate after which there had been an ironic comment on the watercolour his mother was painting. So badly, poor things, but with such loving and conscientious care. The milk chocolate advertisement that Nestle rejected, and now it was his turn. Instead of just mooning about with your mouth mouth open, like the valley idiot, why not do something intelligent for change? Put in some work on your German grammar, for example. Diving into the rucksack, he had pulled out from among the hard-boiled eggs and the sandwiches the abhorred little brown book. What a detestable man. And yet, if Susilla was right, one ought to be able to see him now, after all these years, glowing like a jeshin. Will glanced again at the last line of the poem. Blue, unpossessed and open. He turned towards the door. Talk of the devil, he said, or rather read what the devil has written. He held up the sheet of notepaper for her inspection. She should have glanced at it. Oh, that, she said. If only good intentions were enough to make good poetry. She sighed and shook her head. I was trying to think of my father as a gentian, he went on. But all I get is this persistent image of the most enormous turd. Even turds, she assured him, can be seen as gentians. But only I take it in the place you are writing about, the clear place between thought and silence. Susilla nodded. How do you get there? If you don't get there, there comes to you, or rather, there is really here. You just like little Radha, he complained parroting what the old Raja says at the beginning of this book. 
If we repeat it, she said, it's because it happens to be true. If we didn't repeat it, we'd be ignoring the facts. Whose facts, he asked. Certainly not mine. Not at the moment, she agreed. But if you were to do the kind of things that the old Raja recommends, they might be yours. Did you have parent trouble? He asked, after a little silence. Or could you always see turds as gentians? Not at that age, she answered. Children have to be Manichaean duelists. It's the price we must all pay for learning the rudiments of being human. Seeing turds as gentians, or rather, seeing both gentians and turds as gentians with a capital G. That's a postgraduate accomplishment. So we did, so what did you do about your parents? Just grin and bear the unbearable? Or did your father and mother happen to be bearable? Bearable separately, she answered. Especially my father. But quite unbearable together. Unbearable because they couldn't bear one another. A bustling, cheerful, outgoing woman married to a man who fastidiously who to a man so fastidiously introverted that she got on his nerves all the time, even I suspect in bed. She never stopped communicating and he never started. With the result that he thought he she was shallow and insincere. She thought he was heartless, contemptuous, and without normal human feelings. I'd have expected that you people would know better than to walk into that kind of trap. We do know better, she assured him. Boys and girls are specifically target, uh, taught sorry, what to expect of people whose temperament and physique are very different from their own. Unfortunately, it sometimes happens that the lessons don't seem to have much effect. Not to mention the fact that in some cases, the psychological distance between the people involved is really too great to be bridged. Anyhow, the fact remains that my father and mother never managed to make a go of it. They'd fallen in love with one another. Goodness knows why. But when they came to close quarters, she found herself being constantly hurt by this inaccessibility. While her uninhibited good fellowship made him fairly cringe with embarrassment and distaste. My sympathies were always with my father. Physically and temperamentally, I'm very close to him, not in the least like my mother. I remember, even as a tiny child, how I used to shrink away from her exuberance. She was like a permanent invasion of one's privacy. She still is. Do you think to see a lot of her? Very little. She has her own job and her own friends. In our part of the world, mother is strictly the name of a function. When the function has been duly fulfilled, the title lapses. The ex-child and the woman who used to be called mother establish a new kind of relationship. If they get on well together, they continue to see a lot of one another. If they don't, they drift apart. Nobody expects them to cling and clinging isn't equated with loving isn't regarded as anything particularly creditable so all's well now but what about then what happened when you were a child growing up between two people who couldn't bridge the gulf that separated them? i know 
what that means. The fairy story ending in reverse. And so they lived unhappily ever after. And I have no doubt, said the Suthila, that if we hadn't been born in Parla, we would have lived unhappily ever after. As it was, we got on, all things considered, remarkably well. How did you manage to do that? We didn't. It was all managed for us. Have you read what the old Raja says about getting rid of the two-thirds of sorrow that's homemade and gratuitous? Well, mother, I was just reading it when you came in. Well, in the bad old days, she went on, Palinese families could be just a victimising, timing-producing and lie-creating as yours can be today. In fact, they were so awful that Dr Andrew and the Raja of the Reform decided that something had to be done about it. Buddhist ethics and primitive village communism were skillfully made to serve the purpose of reason, and in a single generation, the whole family system was radically changed. She hesitated for a moment. Let me explain, she went on, in terms of my own particular case, the case of an only child of two people who couldn't understand one another and were always at cross-purposes or actually quarrelling. In the old days, a little girl brought up in those surroundings would have emerged as either a wreck, a rebel, or a resigned, hypocritical conformist. Under the new dispensation, I didn't have to undergo unnecessary suffering. I wasn't wrecked or forced into rebellion or resignation. Why? Because from the moment I could toddle, I was free to escape. To escape, he repeated. To escape, it seemed too good to be true. Escape, she explained, is built into the new system. Whenever the parental home sweet home becomes too unbearable, the child is allowed, is actively encouraged, and the whole weight of public opinion is behind the encouragement to migrate to one of its other homes. How many homes does a Palinese uh, child have? About 20 on average. 20? My God. We all belong, Susan explained, to a MAC, a Mutual Adoption Club. Every MAC consists of anything from 15 to 25 assorted couples. Newly elected brides and bridegrooms, old-timers with growing children, grandparents and great-grandparents. Everybody in the club adopts everybody, everyone else. Besides our own blood relations, we all have our quota of deputy mothers, deputy fathers, deputy aunts and uncles, deputy brothers and sisters, deputy babies and toddlers and teenagers. Will shook his head, making 20 families grow where only one grew before. But what grew before you, what, sorry, but what grew before was your kind of family. The 20 are, are all our kind as though reading instructions from a cookery book. Take one sexually inept wage slave, she went on. One dis dissatisfied female. Two, or if preferred, three small television addicts. Marinate in a mixture of Freudism and dilute Christianity, then bottle up tightly in a four-room flat and stew of for 15 years in their own juice. Our recipe is rather different. Take 20 sexually satisfied couples, and their offspring add science, intuition and humour in equal quantities 
steep in tantric Buddhism and simmer indefinitely in an open pan in the open air over a brisk flame of affection. And what comes out of your open pan, he asked. An entirely different kind of family. Not exclusive, like your families, and not predestined, not compulsory. An inclusive, unpredestined and voluntary family. Twenty pairs of fathers and mothers. Eight or nine ex-fathers and ex-mothers. And forty or fifty assorted children of all ages. Do people stay in the same adoption club all their lives? Of course not. Grown-up children don't adopt their own parents or their own brothers and sisters. They go out and adopt another set of elders, a different group of peers and juniors. And the members of the new club adopt them, and in due course, their children. Hybridisation of microcultures. That's what our sociologists call the process. It's as beneficial on its own level as the hybridisation or different strains of maize or chickens. Healthier relationships in more responsible groups. Wider sympathies and deeper understandings. And the sympathies and understandings are for everyone in the MAC, from babies to centenarians. Centenarians? What's your expectations of life? A year or two more than yours, she answered. 10% of us are over six. 65. They all get pensions if they can't earn, but obviously pensions aren't enough. They need something useful and challenging to do. They need people they can care for and be loved by in return. The MACs fulfil those needs. It all sounds, said Will, suspiciously like the propaganda for one of the new Chinese communes. Nothing, she assured him, could be less like a commune than a MAC. An MAC isn't run by the government, it's run by its members. And we're not materialistic, sorry, not materialistic, military, militaristic, militaristic. We're not interested in turning out good party members, we're only interested in turning out good human beings. We don't inculcate dogmas, and finally we don't take the children away from their parents, on the contrary, we give the children additional parents and the parents additional children. That means that even in the nursery, we enjoy a certain degree of freedom. And our freedom increases as we grow older and can deal with a wider range of experience and take on greater responsibilities. Whereas in China, there's no freedom at all. The children are handed over to official baby tamers whose business it is to turn them into obedient servants of the state. Things are a great deal better in your part of the world. Better, but still quite bad enough. You escape the state-appointed baby tamers, but your society condemns you to pass your childhood in an exclusive family, with only a single set of siblings and parents. They're foisted on you by hereditary predestination. You can't get rid of them. Can't take a holiday from them. Can't go to anyone else for a change of moral or psychological air. It free them, if you like, but free them in a telephone booth. Locked in, Will elaborated, and I'm thinking now of myself with a sneering bully. A Christian martyr, and a little girl who'd been frightened by the bully, and blackmailed by the martyr's appeal to her better fe- feelings into a state of 
quivering imbecility. That was the home from which, until I was 14 and my Aunt Mary came to live next door, I never escaped. And your unfortunate parents never escaped from you. That's not quite true. My father used to escape into brandy and my mother into high Anglicanism. High Anglicanism. 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 I had to serve out my sentence without the slightest mitigation. 14 years of family servitude. How I envy you. Free as a bird. Not so lyrical. Free, let's say, as a developing human being. Free as a future woman, but no freer. Mutual adoption guarantees children against injustice and the worst consequences of parental ineptitude. It doesn't guarantee them against discipline or against having to accept responsibilities. On the contrary, it increases the number of their responsibilities. It exposes them to a wide variety of disciplines. In your predestined and exclusive families of children, as you say, serve a long prison term under a single set of parental jailers. These parental jailers may, of course, be good, wise and intelligent. In that case, the little prisoners will emerge more or less unscathed. But in point of fact, most of your parental jailers are not conspicuously good, wise or intelligent. They're apt to be well-meaning, but stupid, or not well-meaning and frivolous, or else neurotic, or occasionally downright malevolent, or frankly insane. So God help the young convicts committed by law and custom and religion to their tender mercies. But now consider what happens in a large, inclusive, voluntary family. No telephone booths, no predestined jailers, here the children grow up in a world that's a working model of society at large. A small scale but accurate version of the environment in which they're going to have to live when they're grown up. Holy, healthy, whole. They all come from the same root and carry different overtones of the same meaning. Etymologically, and in fact, our kind of family, the inclusive and voluntary kind, it's a genuine holy family. Yours is the unholy son. Amen, say Bill, and fought again of his childhood, fought to a poor little mulligan in the clutches of the ranny. What happens, he asked after a pause, when the children migrate to one of their own homes? How long do they stay there? It all depends. When my children get fed up with me, they seldom stay away for more than a day or two. That's because, fundamentally, they're very happy at home. I wasn't, and so when I walked out, I sometimes stay away from for a whole month. And did you did your deputy parents back you up against your real mother and father? It's not a question of doing anything against anybody. All that's being backed up is intelligence and good feeling, and all that's being opposed is unhappiness and its avoidable causes. If a child feels unhappy in his first home, we do our best for him in 15 or 20 second homes. Meanwhile, the father and mother get some tactful therapy from the other members of their mutual adoption club. In a few weeks, the parents are fit to be with their children again, and the children are fit to be with their parents. But you mustn't think, she added, 
that it's only when they're in trouble that children resort to their deputy parents and grandparents. They do it all the time. Whenever they feel the need for a change or some kind of new experience. And it isn't just a social role. Whenever they go as deputy children, they have the responsibilities as well as their rights. Brushing the dog, for example, cleaning out the bird cages, minding the baby while the mother's doing something else. Duties as well as privileges. Not in one of your airless little telephone booths. Duties and privileges in a big, open, unpredestined, inclusive family where all the seven ages of man and a dozen different skills and talents are represented and in which children have experience of all the important and significant things that human beings do and suffer. Working, playing, loving, getting old, being sick, dying. She was silent, thinking of Dugold and Dugold's mother, then deliberately changing her tone. But what about you, she went on. I've been so busy talking about families that I haven't even asked you how you're feeling. You suddenly look a lot better than when I saw you last. Thanks to Dr. MacPhail, those are thanks to someone who I suspect was deathly practicing medicine without a license. What on earth did you do to me yesterday afternoon? Susilla smiled. You did it to yourself, she assured him. I merely pressed the buttons. Which buttons? Memory buttons. Imagination buttons. And that was enough to put me into a hypnotic trance. Uh, if you like to call it that, what else can you call can one call it? Why call it anything? Names are such question. Names are such question beggars. Why not be content with just knowing that it happened? But what did happen? Well, to begin with, we made some kind of contact, didn't we? We certainly did. He agreed. And yet, I don't believe I even so much as looked at you. He was looking at her now, though looking and wondering as he looked. Who this strange little creature really was. What lay behind the smooth grave mask of the face. What the dark eyes were seeing as they returned to scrutiny. What she was thinking. What could you look at? She said. You'd gone off on your vacation. Or was I pushed off? Pushed? No. I shook her head. Let's say seen off. Helped off. There was a moment of silence. Did you ever, she resumed, try to do a job of work with a child hanging around? Will thought of a small neighbour who had offered to help him paint the dining room furniture and laughed at the memory of his exasperation. Poor little darling, Susella went on. He means so well. He's so anxious to help. But the paint's on the carpet. The fingerprints are all over the walls. So that in the end, you have to get rid of him. Run along, little boy. Go and play in the garden. There was a silence. Well, he questioned at last. Don't you see? Will shook his head. What happens when you're ill? When you've been hurt? Who does the repairing? Who heals the wounds and throws off the infection? You. Who else? You, she insisted. You. The person that feels the pain. And does the worrying and thinks about sin and money and the future. Is that is that you capable of doing what has to be done? 
Oh, I see what you're driving at. At last, she mocked. Send me to play in the garden so that the grown-ups can do their work in peace. But who are the grown-ups? Don't ask me, she answered. That's a question for a neurotheologian. Meaning what? He asked. Meaning precisely what it says. Somebody who thinks about people in terms, simultaneously, of the clear light of the void and of the vegetative nervous system. The grown-ups are a mixture of mind and physiology. And the children? The children are the little fellows who think they know better than the grown-ups. And so must have told to run along and play. Exactly. Is your sort of treatment standard procedure in parlour? He asked. Standard procedure, she assured him. In your part of the world, doctors get rid of the children by poisoning them with barbiturates. We do it by talking to them about cathedrals and jackdaws. Her voice had modulated into a chant about white clouds floating in the sky, white swans floating on the dark, smooth, irresistible river of a life. Now, now, he protested. None of that. A small lit up. A smile lit up the grey, dark face, and she began to laugh. Will looked at her with astonishment. Here, suddenly, was a different person. Another Susilla MacPhail. Gay, mischievous, ironical. I know your tricks, he added, joining in the laughter. Tricks? Still laughing, she took her head. I was just explaining how I did it. I know exactly how you did it. And I also know... That it works. What's more, I give you leave to do it again, whenever it's necessary. If you like, he said more seriously, I'll show you how to press your own buttons. We teach it in all our elementary schools. The three R's plus rudimentary SD. What's that? Self-determination. Elias, destiny control. Destiny control? He raised his eyebrows. No, no, she assured him. We're not quite such fools, as you seem to think. We know perfectly well that only a part of our destiny is controllable. And you control it by pressing your own buttons. Pressing our own buttons and then visualising what would like to happen. But does it happen? In many cases, it does. Simple. There was a note of irony in his voice. Wonderfully simple, she agreed. And yet, so far as I know, we're the only people who systematically teach DC to their children. You just tell them what they're supposed to do and leave it at that. Behave well, you say, but how? You never tell them. All you do is give them pet talks and punishments. Pure idiocy. Pure, unadulterated, unadulterated idiocy, he agreed. Remembering Mr. Crab his housemaster, on the subject of masturbation, remembering the canings and the weekly sermons and the communication service on on uh, Ash Wednesday. Cursed is he that layeth with his neighbour's wife. Amen. If your children take the idiocy seriously, they grow up to be miserable sinners. And if they don't take it seriously, they grow up to be miserable cynics. And if they react from miserable cynicism, they're apt to go papist or Marxist. No wonder you have to have 
all those thousands of jails and churches and communist jails. Whereas in parlour, I gather, you have very few. Susilla shook her head. No Alcatrazes here, she said. No Billy Grahams or Mousy Thumbs or Madonnas of Fatima. No hells on earth and no Christian pie in the sky. No communist pie in the 22nd century. Just men and women and their children trying to make the best of the here and now. Instead of living somewhere else, as you people mostly do, in some other time, some other homemade imaginary universe. And it really isn't your fault. You're always compelled to live that way because the present is so frustrating. And it's frustrating because you've never been taught how to bridge the gap between theory and practice, between your New Year's resolutions and your actual behaviour. For the good that I would, he quoted, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do. Who said that? The man who invented Christianity, St Paul. You see, she said, the highest possible ideals and no methods for realising them, except the supernatural method of having them realised by somebody else. Throwing back his head, Will Thornby burst into song. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood are cleansed of all their stains. Susilla had covered her ears. It's really obscene, she said. My housemaster's favourite hymn, Will explained. We used to sing it about once a week. And all the time I was at school. Thank goodness, she said. There was never any blood in Buddhism. Datama lived till 80 and died for being too courteous to refuse bad food. To refuse bad food. <laughs> violent death always seems to call for more violent death. If you wouldn't believe that, you'd redeem, that you're redeemed by my redeemer's blood, I'll drown you in your own. Last year I took a course at Shiva Param in the history of Christianity. Sushila shuddered at the moment. What a horror! And all because that poor ignorant man didn't know how to implement his good intentions. And most of all, said Will, are still in the same old boat. The evil that we would, would not, that we do, and how. Reacting unforgivably to the unforgivable, Will Farnaby laughed derisively. Laughed because he had seen the goodness of Molly and then, with open eyes, had chosen the pink alcove and with it Molly's unhappiness. Molly's death. His own gnawing sense of guilt and then the pain, out of all proportion to its low and essentially farcical cause. The agonising pain that he had felt when Babs, in due course, did what any fool must have known she inevitably, inevitably would do, turned him out of her infernal gin-illumined gin -illumined paradise and took another lover. What's the matter? Susilla asked. Nothing. Why do you ask? Because you're not very good at hiding your feelings. You were thinking of something that made you unhappy. You've got sharp eyes, he said, and I looked away. There was a long silence. Should, I, should he tell her? Tell her about Babs? About poor Molly? About himself? Tell her all the dismal and senseless things he had never, never, even when 
he was drunk. Told even his oldest friends. Old friends knew too much about one. Too much about the other parties involved. Too much about the grotesque and complicated game which, as an English gentleman, who was also a bohemian, also a would-be poet, also in mere despair, because he knew he could never be a good poet, a hard-boiled journalist and the private agent, very well paid, of a rich man whom he despised. He was always so elaborately playing. No old friends would never do. But from this dark little outsider, the stranger to whom he already owed so much and with whom, through he knew nothing about her, he was already so intimate, there would come no foregone conclusions, no ex parte judgments would come perhaps. He found himself hoping. He would have trained himself never to hope. Some unexpected enlightenment, some positive and practical help. And God knew he needed help. Though God also knew only too well that he would never say so, never sink so low as to ask for it. Like a musin, musin, that's a M-U-E-Z-Z-I-N, in his minaret, one of the talking birds began to shout from the tall palm beyond the mango trees. Here and now, boys. Here and now, boys. Why not here and now, girls? Will decided to take the plunge, but to take it indirectly by talking first not about his problems, but hers. Without looking at Susilla, for that he felt would be indecent, he began to speak. Dr. MacPhail told me something, something about, about what happened to your husband. The words turned a sword in her heart, but that was to be expected. That was right and inevitable. It will be four months next Wednesday, she said, and then, meditatively, two people, she went on after a little silence, two separate individuals, but they add up to something like a new creation. And then suddenly half of this new creature is amputated, but the other half doesn't die, can't die, mustn't die, mustn't die. For so many reasons, the children oneself, the whole nature of things. But needless to say, she added, with a little smile that only accentuated the sadness in her eyes, needless to say, the reasons don't lessen the shock of the amputation or make the aftermath any more bearable. The only thing that helps is what we're talking about just now. Destiny control. And even that, she shook her head. DC, can give you a completely painless childbirth, but a completely painless bereavement, no? And, of course, that's as it should be. It wouldn't be right if you could take away all the pain of a bereavement. You'd be less than human. Less than human, he repeated. Less than human. Three short words, but how completely they summed him up. The really terrible thing, he said aloud, is when you know it's your fault that the other person died. Were you married, she asked, for 12 years, until last spring. And now she's dead? She died in an accident. In an accident? Then how was it your fault? The accident happened because, well, because the evil that I didn't want to do, I did. And that day it came to the head, to her head. The hurt of it confused and distracted her. 
and I let her drive away in the car, let her drive away into a head-on collision. Did you love her? He hesitated for a moment, then slowly shook his head. Was there somebody else? Somebody you cared for more? Somebody I couldn't have cared for less? He made a grimace of sardonic self-mockery. And that was the evil you didn't want to do, but did. Did and went on doing until I'd killed the woman I ought to have loved, but didn't. Went on doing it even after I killed her, even though I hated myself for doing it. Yes, I really hated the person who made me do it. Made you do it, as opposed by having the right kind of body? Will nodded and there was, a, was silence. Do you know what it's like, he asked at length, to feel that nothing is quite real, including yourself? Susilla nodded. It sometimes happens when one's just on the point of discovering that everything, including oneself, is much more real than one ever imagined. It's like shifting gears. You have to go into neutral before you can, can you change into high. Or low, said Rob. In my case, the shift wasn't up. It was down. No, not even down. It was into reverse. The first time it happened, I was waiting for a bus to take me home from Fleet Street. Thousands upon thousands of people, all on the move, and each of them unique. Each of them the centre of the universe. Then the sun came out from behind a cloud. Everything was extraordinarily bright and clear. And suddenly, with an almost inaudible click, they were all maggots. Maggots? You know, those little pale worms with black heads that one sees on rotten meat. Nothing had changed, of course. People's faces were the same. Their clothes were the same. And yet, they were all maggots. Not even real maggots. Just the ghosts of maggots. Just the illusion of maggots. And I was the illusion of a spectator of maggots. I lived in that maggot world for months. Lived in it. Worked in it. Went out to lunch and dinner in it. All without the least interest in what I was doing. Without the least enjoyment or relish. Completely desireless. And, as I discovered, when I tried to make love to a young woman, I'd had occasional fun with it with it in the past. Completely impotent. What did you expect? Precisely that. Then why on earth? Will gave her one of his blade smiles and shrugged his shoulders. As a master scientific interest, I was an entomologist investigating the sex life of the phantom maggot. After which, I suppose, everything seemed even more unreal. Even more, he agreed, if that was possible. But what brought on the maggots in the first place? Well, to begin with, he answered, I was my parent's son. By bully boozer out of Christian martyr, and on top of being my parent's son, he went on after a little pause, I was my Aunt Mary's nephew. What did your Aunt Mary have to do with it? She was the only person I ever loved. And when I was 16, she got cancer. Off with the right breast, then a year later, off with the left. And after that, nine months of x-rays, radiation sickness, then it got into the liver. And that was the end. I was there from start to finish. For a boy in his teens, it was a liberal education, but liberal. In what? Susilla asked. 
pure and applied pointlessness. And a few weeks after the close of my private course on the subject came the grand opening of the public course. World War Two, followed by the non-stop refresher course of Cold War One. And all this time I've been wanting to be a poet and finding out uh, that I simply don't have what it takes. And then after the war, I had to go into journalism to, to make money. What I wanted was to go hungry if necessary, but try to write something decent, good prose at least, seeing that it couldn't be good poetry. But I'd reckoned about those darling parents of mine. By the time he died in January 46, my father had got rid of all the money our family had inherited. And by the time she was blessedly a widow, my mother was crippled with arthritis and had to be supported. So there was in Fleet Street supporting her with an ease and a success that were completely humiliating. Why humiliating? Wouldn't you be humiliated if you found yourself making money by turning out the cheapest, flashiest kind of literary forgery? I was a success because I was so irremediably second rate. And the net result of it all was maggots. He nodded. Not even real maggots. Phantom maggots. And here's where Molly came into the picture. I met her at a high class maggot party in Bloomsbury. We were introduced. We made some politely inane conversation about non-object painting. Not wanting to see any more maggots. I didn't look at her. But she must have been looking at me. Molly had very pale grey-blue eyes. He added perfectly, eyes that saw everything. She was incredibly observant, but observed without malice or censoriousness. Seeing the evil, if it was there, but never condemning it. Just feeling enormously sorrow, sorry for the person who was under compulsion to think those thoughts. And do that odious kind of thing. Well, as I say, she must have been looking at me while we talked. For suddenly she asked me why I was so sad. I had had a couple of drinks and there was nothing impertinent or offensive about the way she asked the question. So I told her about the maggots. And you're one of them. I finished up. And for the first time, I looked at her. A blue-eyed maggot with a face like one of the holy women in attendance at a Flemish crucifixion. Was she flattered? Was she flattered? I think so. She stopped being a Catholic, but she still had certain weakness for crucifixions and holy men, holy women. Anyhow, next morning she called me at breakfast time. Would I like to drive down into the country with her? It was Sunday, and by a miracle, fine. I accepted. We spent an hour in a hazel court copse, picking primroses and looking at little white windflowers. One doesn't pick the windflowers, he explained, because in an hour they're withered. I had a little looking in that hazel copse, looking at flowers with an, the naked eye and then looking into them through the magnifying glass that Molly had brought with her. I don't know why, but it was extraordinarily therapeutic. Just looking into the hearts of primroses and enamones. For the rest of the day, I saw no maggots. But Fleet Street was still there, waiting for me. 
and by lunchtime on Monday the whole place was crawling with them as thickly as ever. Millions of maggots, but now I know what to do about them. That evening I went to Molly's studio. Was she a painter? Not a real painter, and she knew it. Knew it and didn't resent it. Just made the best of having no talent. She didn't paint for art's sake. She painted because she liked looking at things. Liked the process of trying meticulously to reproduce what she saw. That evening she gave me a canvas and a palette and told me to do likewise. And did it work? It worked so well that when a couple of months later I cut open a rotten apple, the worm at its centre wasn't a maggot. Not subjectively, I mean. Objectively. Yes, it was all that a maggot should be. And that's how it portrayed it. How we both portrayed it. And we always painted the same things at the same time. What about the other maggots? The phantom maggots outside the apple? Well, I still had relapses, especially in Fleet Street and at our cocktail parties. But the maggots were definitely fewer, definitely less haunting. And meanwhile, something new was happening in the studio. I was falling in love. Falling in love because love is catching. And Molly was so obviously in love with me. Why? God only knows. I can see several possible reasons why. She might have loved you because. She suddenly eyed him appraisingly and smiled. Well, because you're quite an attractive kind of queer fish. He laughed. Thank you for a handsome compliment. On the other hand, Cecilia went on, and this isn't quite so complimentary, she might have loved you because you made her feel so damn sorry for you. That's the truth, I'm afraid. Molly was a born sister of mercy. And a sister of mercy, unfortunately, isn't the same as a wife of love, which I duly discovered, he said. After your marriage, I suppose, Will hesitated for a moment. Actually, he said, it was before. Not because on her side there had been any urgency of desire, but only because she was so eager to do anything to please me. Only because, on principle, she didn't believe in conventions and was all for freely loving. And more surprisingly, remembered the outrageous things she would so casually and placidly give utterance to, even in his mother's presence. All for freely talking about that freedom. You knew it beforehand, Susilla summed up, and yet you still married her. Will nodded his head without speaking. Because you were a gentleman, I take it, and a gentleman keeps his word. Partly for that rather old-fashioned reason, but also because I was in love with her. Were you in love with her? Yes, no, I don't know. But at the same time, I did know. At least I thought I knew. <coughs> I was really convinced that I was really in love with her. And I knew, I still know, why I was convinced. I was grateful to her for having exercised those maggots. And besides the gratitude, there was respect. There was admiration. She was so much better and honester than I was. But unfortunately, you're right. A sister of mercy isn't the same as a wife of love. But I was ready to take Molly on her own terms, not, my, not on mine. I was ready to believe that her terms were better than mine. How soon, Susila asked, after a long silence, did you start having affairs on the side? Will smiled 
his flayed smile. Three months to the day after our wedding. The first time was with one of the secretaries at the office. Goodness, what a bore. After that, uh, there was a young painter, a curly-headed little Jewish girl that Molly had helped with money while she was studying at the Slade. I used to go to her studio twice a week from five, five to seven. It was almost three years before Molly found out about it. And I gather she was upset, much more than I'd ever thought she'd be. So what did you do about it? Will shook his head. This is where it begins to get complicated, he said. I had no intention of giving up my cocktail hours with Rachel, but I hated myself for making Molly so unhappy. At the same time, I hated her for being unhappy. I resented her suffering and the love that had made her suffer. I felt that they were unfair, a kind of blackmail to force me to give up my innocent fun with Rachel. By loving me so much and being so miserable about what I was doing, what she really forced me to do. She was putting pressure on me. She was trying to restrict my freedom. But meanwhile, she was genuinely unhappy. And though I hated her for blackmailing me with her unhappiness, I was filled with pity for her. Pity, he repeated, not compassion. Compassion is suffering with. And what I wanted at all costs was to spare myself the pain her suffering caused me and avoid the painful sacrifices by which I could put an end to her suffering. Pity was my answer. Being sorry for her from the outside, if you see what I mean. Sorry for her as a spectator, an aesthete, an aesthete, yeah, an aesthetic, aesthete, a connoisseur in excruciations. And this aesthetic pity of mine was so intense, every time her unhappiness came to her head, that I could almost mistake it for love. Almost, but never quite. For when I expressed my pity in physical tenderness, which I did because that was the only way of putting a temporary stop to her unhappiness and to the pain her unhappiness was inflicting on me, that tenderness was always frustrated before it could come to its natural consummation. Frustrated because, by temperament, she was only a sister of mercy, not a wife. And yet, on every level but the essential, she loved me with total commitment. A commitment that's called for an answering commitment on my part. But I wouldn't commit myself. Maybe I genuinely couldn't. So instead of being grateful for her self-giving, I resented it. It made claims on me. Claims that I refused to acknowledge. So there we were, at the end of every crisis, back at the beginning of the old drama. The drama of a love incapable of sensuality, self-committed to a sensuality incapable of love and evoking strangely mixed responses of guilt and exasperation, of pity and resentment, sometimes of real hatred, but always with an undertone of remorse. The whole accompanied by contrapuntal to a succession of furtive evenings with my little curly-headed painter. I hope, at least, they were enjoyable, said Susilla. He shrugged his shoulders, only moderately. Rachel could never forget that she was an intellectual. She had a way of asking what one, one thought of Piero di Cosimo at the most inopportune moments. 
the real enjoyment and of course the real agony I never experienced them until Babs appeared on the scene when was that? just over a year ago in Africa Africa? I'd been sent there by Joe Alderhyde that man who owns newspapers and all the rest he was married to Molly's aunt Eileen an exemplary family man I may add that's why he's so serenely convinced of his own righteousness, even when he's enraged in the most nefarious financial operations. And you're working for him? Will nodded. That was his wedding present to Molly. A job for me on the Alderhyde papers at almost twice the salary I'd been getting from my previous employees. Princely. But then he was very fond of Molly. How did they react to Babs? He never knew about her, never knew that there was any reason for Molly's accident. So he goes on employing you for your dead wife's sake? Will shrugged his shoulders. The excuse, he said, is that I have my mother to support. And of course, you wouldn't enjoy being poor. I certainly wouldn't. It was a science. Well, said Cecil at last, let's get back to Africa. I've been sent there to do a series of Negro nationalism, not to mention a little private hanky-panky in the business line for Uncle Joe. It was on the plane, flying home from Nairobi, I found myself sitting next to her. Next to the young woman you couldn't have liked less. Couldn't have liked less, he repeated, or disapproved of more. But if you're an addict, you've got to have your dope. The dope that you know in advance is going to destroy you. It's a funny thing, she said effectively, but in parlour we have hardly any addicts. Not even sex addicts. The sex addicts are also person addicts. In other words, they're lovers. But even lovers sometimes hate the people they love. Naturally, because I always have the same name and the same nose and eyes, it doesn't follow that I'm always the same woman. Recognising that fact and reacting to it sensibly, that's part of the art of loving. As succinctly, as succinctly as he could, Will told her the rest of the story. It was the same story now that Babs had come on the scene as it had been before. The same but much more so. Babs had been Rachel raised, so to speak, to a higher power. Rachel squared. Rachel to the nth. And the unhappiness that, because of Babs, he had inflicted upon Molly was proportionally greater than anything she had to suffer on the account of Rachel. Proportionately greater too had been his own exasperation, his own resentful sense of being blackmailed by her love and suffering, his own remorse and pity, his own determination in spite of the remorse and the pity, and to go on getting what he wanted. What he wanted, what he hated himself for wanting, what he resolutely refused to do without. And meanwhile, Babs had become more demanding, reclaiming ever more and more of his time. Time not only in the strawberry pink alcove, but also outside, in restaurants, in nightclubs, at her horrible friend's cocktail parties, on weekends in the country. Just you and me, darling, she would say, all alone together. All alone together in an isolation that gave him the opportunity to plumb the almost 
unfathomable depths of her mindless and vulgarity. Mindlessness and vulgarity. But through all his boredom, his distaste, all his moral and intellectual repugnance, the craving persisted. After one of those dreadful weekends, he was as hopelessly as Bab's addict, a Bab's addict, as he had been before. And on her side, on her own sister of mercy level, Molly had remained, in spite of everything, no less hopelessly a Will Farnaby addict. Hopefully, so far as he was concerned, for his one wish was that she should love him less and allow him to go to hell in peace. But, so far as Molly herself was concerned, the addiction was always and irrepressibly hopeful. She never ceased to respect the transfiguring miracle that would change him into the kind and selfish, loving Will Farnaby, whom, in the teeth of all the evidence, all the repeated disappointments, she stubbornly insisted on regarding as his true self. It was only in the course of that last fatal interview, only when stifling his pity and giving free rein to his resentment of her blackmailing unhappiness, he had announced his intention of leaving her and going to live with Babs. It was only then that hope had finally given place to hopelessness. Do you mean it, Will? Do you really mean it? I really mean it. It was hopelessness that she had walked out to the car. In utter hopelessness, had driven away into the rain, into her death. death sorry. At the funeral, when the coffin was lowered into the grave, he had promised himself that he would never see Babs again. Never, never, never again. That evening, while he was sitting at his desk, trying to write an article on What's Wrong With Youth, Try not to remember the hospital, the open grave and his own responsibility for everything that had happened. He was startled by the shrill buzzing of the doorbell. A belated message of condolence, no doubt. He had opened and there, instead of the telegram, was Babs. Dramatically, without makeup and all in black. My poor, poor Will. They had sat down on the sofa in the living room and she had stroked his hair and both of them had cried. An hour later, they were naked and in bed. Within three months, as any fool could have foreseen, Babs had begun to tire of him. Within four, an absolutely divine man from Kenya had turned up at the cocktail party. One thing had led to another and when, three days later, Babs came home, it was to prepare the alcove for a new tenant and give notice to the old. Do you really mean it, Babs? She really meant it. There was a rustling in the bushes outside the window. And an instant later, startlingly loud and slightly out of tune, Here and now, boys, shouted the, talking bird, shouted the talking bird. Shut up, Will shouted back. Here and now, boys, the miner repeated. Here and now, boys, here and... Shut up! There was a si There was silence. I had to shut him up, Will explained, because of course he's absolutely right. Here, boys, now, boys, then and there are absolutely irrelevant. Or aren't they? What about your husband's death, for example? Is that irrelevant? She suddenly looked at him for a moment in silence, then slowly nodded her head. 
In the context of what I have to do now, yes, completely irrelevant. That's something I had to learn. Does one learn how to forget? It isn't a matter of forgetting. What one has to learn is how to remember and yet be free of the past. How to be there with the dead and yet still be here on the spot with the living. She gave him a sad little smile and added, It isn't easy. It isn't easy, Will repeated. And suddenly all his defences were down. All his pride had left him. Will you help me, he asked. It's a bargain, she said, and held out her hand. The sound of footsteps made them turn their heads. Dr Macphail had entered the room. And yeah, another long chapter, chapter seven. That's just over an hour again. So yeah, I'm going to stop there. Um, and uh, hope you enjoyed that. See you in the next chapter, chapter eight.